Okay. Uh, I'm excited to get going in this interview in our Wealthy Teachers interview series with uh, Sarah McKay, who I'm excited to meet because I, I have no prior introductions. I feel like, Lindsay, you know a little bit more about Sarah's background, but I'm excited to hear about it myself for the first time. This is going to be fun. And I, I love what she does online. I, I love her work and her, yeah, her path. <laughs> so Sarah, why don't we dive into a little bit about that path? Tell us about your work in academia. Um, you can tell us about your research. I know we don't get to talk about that. Well, you do. I think you you do yeah, talk about your research a, a lot. Little, but yeah. um, tell us what you studied and um, you know where you spent your academic career. Sure. Well, what's sound, it feels like kind of another lifetime ago now. So right. <laughs> um, people may not be able to know tell by my accent, but I'm a Kiwi. I grew up in New Zealand, although now, now I live in Sydney in Australia. Um, and I grew up, I was probably like so many people that go into academia, um, you know, I read everything I could get my hands on, you know, the back of the cereal box, always had my head stuck in a book, went through school, loved school and went into my first year of university very much thinking I was, oh, I'll do medicine, dentistry, law, something like, like that. And I did a first year psychology paper and mm. the, um, the lecturer said, this is it. This was in uh, in New Zealand. Said, "Oh, there's this book. I think you should read. It's by a neurologist called Oliver Sacks, and it's called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat." Now, anyone who's yes, studied psychology, neurology, yeah, anyone in yeah. that sort of space will know that book. And I, mm-hmm. I read that book, and I was just like, "Could there possibly be anything else on this?" planet that would be more interesting than studying the brain and at that point this was 1993 um there was a very new discipline starting up at another university um otago university about four hours down the road from where i lived called called neuroscience which is really taking together the kind of the neuro components from the, the departments of psychology and pharmacology and anatomy and physiology and pulling them together into this this brand new discipline. So this is back early nineties. And I went and I just was, that was it. My, my kind of, my, <laughs> my path was set. So moved universities to study that. And, you know, I really haven't deviated it in terms of that fascination ever since. Mm. Um, so did a, um, an un, well, in, in New Zealand and this part of the world, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, I did an undergraduate, uh, a bachelor of science degree a four-year degree majoring in neuroscience. Loved that. Just uh, every, everything about it was amazing. Did a research project in my final year. Loved that. When I would, I just could not think of anything else I wanted to do apart from being an academic. Now, there's a bit of a rite of passage in this part of the world. You head off to, to Europe after your, your degree. We call it your OE or your overseas experience. And so I, I headed mm. off on that and I thought, well, look, well, I'm in the UK working in a pub because that's what you do after you've backpacked around Europe. I'll, I'll check out PhD opportunities. And I was living in Scotland and Edinburgh at the time working in a pub with all the other Kiwis and Aussies and went back in the olden days when you used to pick up like the nature and science actual paper magazines and used to flick through the the um the back of them and and the classifieds and I saw you know that's where they used to advertise PhD opportunities <laughs> and oh, wow. um pre pre internet days and yeah. um and I saw advertised Oxford University was doing a four year 
um, PhD, a brand new four-year PhD program in neuroscience. And I was like, that's it. That I just knew that that was what, what, what I was going to do. Um, little did I know that there was, there was 200 applicants for five scholarship places, Oof, but I yep. was filled with the confidence of a, you know, 21 year old. I knew I had a really good degree behind me. So I applied, got the scholarship incredibly fortunate to do that and so then I landed myself at Oxford University along with there was there was five of us um two other girls and two guys doing that that four-year PhD program again love that Oxford was the most fantastic place to be I went to a graduate college it was you know mostly international students um so you know we were all graduates kind of arriving in this country for the first time and had an absolute ball for a few years um, and again, still really love the neuroscience, but I think everyone that arrives in somewhere like Oxford, any of those kind of Ivy League type places gets a bit of, uh, imposter syndrome. Um, mm-hmm. they'll figure me mm-hmm. out, but I think that that's pretty much par for the course for most academics, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. you know, I had a great time there, but it was really when I was doing my PhD, but I, I mean, I was surrounded by some really smart people. I started going, I'm not quite sure whether... And, and it was really it was a, it was the fault of comparison. What they're all doing and capable of versus me, I was like, oh, you know, I was really excited when still back when uh, journals would all come in print. Um, they would be reading the Journal of Neuroscience, and I'd be reading New Scientist, and I'd be reading the front, you know, the fronts of Nature and Science just to get the overview. And I started to really the further along my academic career I got, the more and more and more I started to miss the breadth of my undergraduate education. And I, I guess I got FOMO. Mm. You know, you have to narrow down and narrow down and narrow down. And mm-hmm. I always joke until you become an expert in almost nothing. And I was kind of, I felt like I was missing out on learning all of the other stuff. Um, and I sort of, you know, started kind of gently casting out for, as they would call it, alternative careers in science, but I was kind of too scared to tell anyone. Now, I was over in the US one summer and I went to Cold Spring Harbour. Um, The Cold Spring Harbour Labs run sort of summer programs, which are fabulous. I was over there in one of them and I remember um, standing in their, their bookshop and they had a whole bookcase on alternative careers for scientists, which is such a cheesy um, derogatory <laughs> title. And I remember standing mm-hmm. reading this book and it was an excellent book looking at alternative careers and a guy was standing next to me, A very he's now a professor in neurobiology at Stanford, an amazingly intelligent, talented scientist. And he just looked at me and he went, what are you reading that book for? They're the books that failed scientists read. And I was like, well, I'm not one of them, am I, of course? Whoa. So put the put it back on the shelf and really then kind of tried to quieten that little voice inside that said, oh, you know, maybe I want to do something else in science but not this. So got through to the end of my PhD. It was pretty hard work, as it always is. I often joke it's harder to get out of somewhere like Oxford than in. Um, my PhD thesis was really looking at how – neurons in the brain wire up during development and I had a bit of a naive is it nature is it nurture kind of question is it guided by genetics is it guided by experiment experience the environment turns out it was a bit of both I ran really really arduous um lab experiments that went kind of from I'd get in at nine in the morning I'd I'd run them all day overnight the next day and I'd kind of get home at five the next night so I was kind of missing a night's sleep every two or three nights which did not 
mm. which really messed with me. But it didn't really, you know, in your early 20s, I was pretty tough. I thought I could cope. Um, met a gorgeous Irish economist when I was there. Um, we just had our 20th anniversary of being together. We're now married and have mm. kids. Um, anyway, I got to the, you know, the end of my PhD and um, we decided we were a bit sick of the UK and the cold. So we had a moment of let's write a list of all of the cities in the world where we think would be awesome to go and live. So we wrote down places like San Francisco and Paris and and then we both had Sydney, Australia on the list. My husband's Irish, but he grew up sailing um, in a sailing family and I lived in New Zealand, so it wasn't too far away. And we thought, Sydney, that'll be fun for a year. So he um, works for Deloitte as an economist and there was a position coming up. So we thought, well, let's go do that. So came out to Sydney thinking we'd come for a year and that was in 2002. Um, <laughs> and I thought I would be very brave when I came to Sydney. I was still writing up my PhD, um, which I do not ever recommend anyone ever write up a PhD thesis <laughs> when they're not living in, when they're not mm-hmm. with the, near their supervisor, the lab, let alone another country. It was really tough. Um, but I sort of started thinking, you know what, I'm going to investigate one of these alternative careers in science. And so I got a job working for a um, a kind of a, a breast cancer public health education type um, branch of the government. And it was boring as anything. <laughs> it was, I was just, I sat there in this office all day going, is this what you do like when you're not working in the mm. lab? Like you have to sit in a chair mm-hmm. all day. When you do research, you know, you're up and you're moving around and, you know, you can count your steps and it's and there's a huge variety in the day. And I went, oh, okay, I don't really want to leave academia after all. So I ended up doing a couple of postdocs here in Sydney. One was in spinal cord injury research, um, which I really felt very passionate about because I felt it was very applied um, looking back now, I can kind of see perhaps one of the problems with my PhD research was it wasn't very applied. It was very theoretical. Mm. Um, but this spinal cord injury research stuff was was amazing because, you know, it had relevance. But um, it didn't really get on very well with my uh, postdoc supervisor and thought, oh, look, I'm being micromanaged, don't like this. There wasn't a lot of money in the lab, got really fed up, so I switched to another postdoc. Um, group which was looking at deafness so again very applied (laughs) again started kind of battling with this postdoc supervisor a different one this time and of course I started thinking oh must be me Um, and I I felt like at every everywhere I turned there was a gatekeeper Um, I would have someone reading my lab book notes I would have someone saying these are the experiments I want you to go away and work on you bring the data in um, you know, you wouldn't, you know, the data didn't work. Perhaps the pH in a buffer solution wasn't right. Perhaps your, your stats, you know, there was nothing significant. I felt like I worked really, really hard on every aspect of being a scientist, but nothing ever really kind of worked. Um, you know, you would try and get journal articles published and it would take about a year to write them because academia moves at this glacial pace and then the, <laughs> the you know, you'd finally get it written and then the journal would reject it. And you'd rewrite mm-hmm. it and another journal would reject it. And then they'd ask for more experiments and you'd do more experiments and they wouldn't work. And then you'd apply for a research grant. And I felt like at every everywhere I turned, I was being kind of knocked back, not because I wasn't working hard, just because. And I felt I felt really um, uh, 
like I was this square peg in a round hole. Um, and so this was kind of over the space of about three or four years through these two postdocs. And I became more and more and more doubting of myself. I thought, well, it must be me. Um, and, and looking at the same time, doing that dreadful thing in academia of going on and searching, you know, journal article publications of people I'd done my PhD with, or that guy who told me to put the book down when <laughs> I was in Cold Spring Harbor and looking at all of their nature and science and, you know, fantastic publications with these amazing impact, you know, scores. And just, you know, really filled with huge amounts of self-doubt. And look, this was, what year was this? This is kind of like still 2003, 2004. Yeah, it wasn't like there was online forums or Facebook groups or mm, really any mm-hmm, kind of online mm-hmm. culture where you could go away and explore that. There was still a, a, there was a great degree of shame that I felt that I had, I had gone to Oxford. I had this PhD in neuroscience, which I was always so proud to say because of people's reaction. Mm-hmm. And I was so unhappy yet. I, and I, and I loved and had this real passion for the science. Um, but I was, hating doing it and so I, I mm. spent about three or four years really struggling and grappling with those with those decisions um an event and, and kind of through my PhD and through this time I really had started um I feel like I'm in a therapy session telling you all this um, I had started, <laughs> I'd started um that's a good this thing that'll help this a lot of people place. That's yeah. um I'd started kind of squirreling away little um, pieces I'd been writing because I, I, I discovered I really loved doing poster presentations at conferences, loved doing that, hmm. really enjoyed giving talks, enjoyed any of the public, um, and you know, we'd have t- public tour groups through the lab, you know, the rotary tour group, the old folk would come and do a tour through the lab and, and I really enjoyed interacting with them. And I thought, oh, and, I, and I was still reading New Scientist and thinking, oh, gosh, imagine writing for a journal, uh, a magazine like that. So I sort of started hmm. doing a little bit of dabbling in that public um, communication space mm-hmm. um, and then really got to the end the second postdoc really started to fall apart I started bickering with my then <laughs> supervisor and we um, I don't know you guys do you know what GFP mice are it's this kind of fluorescent protein in this mouse and we ended up having this massive falling out over this stem cell experiment in these GFP mm. mice and it was just I was it was it was really bad and I thought, I can't, I don't think I can keep on doing this. Um, mm. It can't be me that I've had, you know, maybe it is me. My husband kept telling me it wasn't. So I sat down. So this must have been, we were, we were, we're probably here looking at around 2005, 2006-ish. I just got married, so it must have been 2006. And, and here in Australia, there's a job search engine called Seek, seek.com.au. And I sat down in the lab, which is a bit naughty. Um, I can't believe I was quite brave enough. And I wrote science writer in the search engine. First time I'd done that. And all of these jobs were bop, 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 bop in Sydney. And I was like, what? I didn't think that this was like a thing. I thought, you know, there'd be a job in the nature head office in London or something. Um, and there was all of these opportunities for people with this a science background, a lot of the prerequisites were PhDs um, who had experience writing. Um, a lot of it was in pharma, some of it was in marketing, um, some of it was in, you know, w- within local Australian medical journals. I, I was, I just sat there going, oh my God, there's all of these different jobs. 
So mm. I I felt like my kind of eyes had suddenly opened and I thought I'm, I've spent the last four or five years really being wanting to make a change but being too scared and I thought maybe I'll just have a go. Um, so I applied for two or three jobs, got them all, and um, I ended up taking a job at Saatchi, the advertising agency in their um, health division, and um, I, God, I loved it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Wave goodbye to academia. Um, was a wee bit nervous about that. However, I have to say mm-hmm. one thing did make that transition and that decision a little bit easier. Was it about, oh, gosh, when I was doing my interviews for these different um, science writing positions, I found out I was pregnant. So, mm. you know, I it was kind of like, well, the next stage of life's going to happen anyway. So there's gonna, this is a big change, right? Having a baby is a massive thing. You know, I might as well make the leap now and kind of see what's going to happen. Um, so I interviewed for these positions. I took my wedding and engagement ring off when I went to those interviews because I was so petrified <laughs> that they might think, here's someone newly married who's not yet pregnant. She'll be having, you know, this is like early mid-2000s. Um, so I interviewed pretending I was single, mm-hmm. even though I was mm. just about six weeks pregnant. Um, <laughs> and then after I'd been working the job for a couple of months, I was like, yes, by the way. Um, and it was just this whole new world. One of the most exciting things, not being in academia anymore. Well, there was a couple of things. One was how quick it moved. Um mm. And this is Saatchi, so, you know, really creative, dynamic advertising agency with all of this kind of stuff going on. And essentially what we were doing was writing pamphlets and flyers and information for doctors to give patients about. You're nearly diagnosed with asthma. Here's a two-page flyer all about your asthma diagnosis. Um, I mm-hmm. was doing conference coverage. I was writing slide sets for specialists. There was I, I was doing all of this research and learning about all of these different subjects again that I that that kind of instead of being so narrow it was incredibly broad I might have to learn about Mm. inflammation I might have to learn about asthma I might have to learn about statins and high blood pressure I might have to learn about schizophrenia and get really up to speed very very quickly it was very fast it was very dynamic and you would write stuff and then people would say that was great thank you so much. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Unlike in academia, when they just kind of beat you down with a baseball bat and make you feel like rubbish. Not good enough. It's not, it was never, instead of it not being good enough, everyone was so appreciative of the work you did. Mm. And they would say, Mm -hmm. that's great. We're going to make a few quick edits. And then it would, you know, you would write something. And then two weeks later, it would be turned into like a glossy brochure that would be sitting in a doctor's office. And I was like, how does that Mm -hmm. happen that quick? So it was incredibly <laughs> exciting and validating and um, I I just absolutely – I was sitting in a desk because right, I was pregnant. Um, so I, I feel like my, my world sort of opened at that point. Um, anyway, I, had, I, went on, I went to have this baby, Harry, who's now 11 and a half, um, when, and, and I started noticing with these agencies that they had a lot of freelance people working for them. Um, a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of the work when there was overflow, there was these freelancers, and so then I went off and had my baby, and then the, the agency would get in touch and say, "Oh, you know that program you were working on on travel vaccines. Any chance you can, you know, do the next phase of that, but just do it at home?" And I was like, "Oh, this is a pretty good gig. I get to sit at home and <laughs> do that." And so that really, by default, this kind of business of freelance writing and consulting 
um, kind of started. And, and so really for the first sort of five or six years, uh, I had another little boy a year and a half later, Jamie. So I've got two boys there now, nine and 11. Um, the first sort of four or five years of motherhood, which were pretty hard, um, I had an outlet, which was doing all this freelance writing and consulting. Yeah, nice. Yeah, you haven't been able to get a word in, so I might just stop for a moment. No. <laughs> no, I love the story. It's fascinating, and I love how you, um, yeah, just went through the whole process, and you touched on a lot of the things that um, we talked, you know, we talk a ton about with our interview folks, people who are transitioning out of academia, is that identity piece. I heard a lot of that coming up. How do you, how do you feel about that now? I mean, that's something that I've been continuously healing. Um, Derek can reflect on that too, but I'm curious, like, where you're at now with this idea of, like, yeah, I went to Oxford and I got a PhD, but, like, I didn't follow the traditional path, but I am, like, I appreciate my journey. Like, yeah, where, where are you uh, Look, I think it's so, like, times have changed so quickly. Sure. <laughs> There's, like, gig mm-hmm. economy in the world. The world in 2019 is such a different place than it was in 2006. Yep. And we can, we now have access and we can kind of see all of the different things people do and it's perfectly acceptable mm-hmm. to have a few different kind of things on the go. Um, you know, okay. I, I, st- I still call myself a neuroscientist because now I teach and I <laughs> write and I've written mm-hmm. a book and I teach these online courses and I do a bit of TV and radio and I do all kinds of things and I'm always introduced as a neuroscientist. The only mm-hmm. time I occasionally think, oh, is, you know, occasionally some dickhead on Twitter will say, you can't call yourself a scientist if you're not working yep. in academia anymore. And I just kind of think, oh, yeah, mate, it's always a bloke, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of flip the bird to them over the digital yep. the digital bird. Kind of think I'll call myself whatever I like, dude. Um, or, you know, yep. you can't use doctor. Why, why would a PhD use mm. the word doctor in front of their name? Mm-hmm. You just kind of think, God, if you've got nothing better to do than, than tell me that. And I was like, oh, well, I, I, quite frankly, I can do whatever I like. Um, <laughs> and that's why I left academia because the, one yep, of the yep. most wonderful things about that is that there's no. I often think I, I kind of have this vision of my, me like inside this little tight box, like trying to push my way out and batting my head against it. And now um, I just have this the, the, this ultimate freedom. And I think as an academic, and most people will be able to relate to this. You're, I mean, you're incredibly motivated and driven. You like a lot of autonomy. You got there because you're smart mm-hmm. and hardworking. And entrepreneurship, running your own business, whatever you want to call it, it, it kind of feeds that. You've got, yep. you know, you know how to work hard. You know how to follow through on a project. You know how to set a goal and reach it. You, you, you know how to just get it, get, get it done without anyone having to look yep. over your shoulder. Um, and in fact, having someone look over your shoulder is incre- can be incredibly demotivating and you lose that autonomy and agency. So um, the, the identity thing, I'm... I, Occasionally, it will sit slightly uncomfortably. I kind of think, oh God, am I being a bit of, you know, should I be still, should I be using the word doctor in front of my name? And honestly, I think I've got a business now. I'll kind of spin it whatever way, whatever way I like. Sometimes I use it. Yeah, I often throw out Oxford Educated because it's such a recognisable mm-hmm. brand. I think when I'm building a business, why not use what I've got? Um, but I don't. Um, I, I think because I have so much. Now I just have so much freedom and agency over the decision making, and if something interests me and I want to pursue that, um, I feel so um, fulfilled and free in my decision making. With those kind of a 
occasionally those little decision making things don't worry me and really it's only ever if someone else questions it and it goes back to that yeah that, yeah I mean I don't really need someone else making the decision about what I call myself do I mm-hmm. um I think it's interesting in this space, the title of doctor or PhD, even mentioning it, it's, it's the space is this entrepreneur space is so based upon actions and like what you actually do. And the titles are used in almost these like very fluffy ways anyway. So Mm -hmm. like someone with a PhD saying I'm Dr. So-and-so you have a lot more evidence backing up that Mm. claim than someone in a, a marketing space who's, you know, best-selling author on Amazon, which is probably true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure, for sure. And I kind of think, you know, yeah. like we've all got to, you know, you've got to sell your business, you're working on it, you know, you've got to you've Correct. got to use what you've yeah. got. And, and um, the, the thing is you can do what you like. <laughs> you don't have to ask mm-hmm. anyone for permission. Um, so I, I know there was a few years ago there was this bit of a trend in this online space Um because I, I have a lot of coaches who kind of come in to do my education programs and there was this and I, met, I remember meeting a psychologist once who was told, don't tell anyone you're a psychologist. People will find it a bit threatening, kind of hide that bit away and just focus on, you know, that you have health coaching qualifications. And I was kind of like, what? Hmm. What's that all about? Mm-hmm. Um, I think mm-hmm. that that's just a story made up by the people who didn't go to university and get the qualifications to make themselves yep. feel better. <laughs> yep. Um, I was like, I'm like a psychologist <laughs> helping people with health is like a great combination yeah, yeah. in so much of what like, we why would just you, related why would you to that. Yeah. You don't have that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Mm. I was going to think, I was thinking we could go down the path of chatting about your uh, course actually, because mm. you do have a, an academy mm. and I, I'd love to talk about that because we, we do like talking about how people are teaching and showing their research if they mm. do research um, and yours is really connected. And I also love that you get, um, you know, credits for sure. folks that take it and enroll. So why don't we talk a little bit about the birth of that program yeah, and, sure. and how that has changed your business and, and what it's doing for your business currently? Yeah, sure. Well, so I, as I said, I was freelance writing for quite a few years and um, really enjoyed that. But, it, you, you know, you, you reach a bit of a bottleneck when you're consulting and writing because there's only so yep, many hours yep. in a day. Um, so being the researcher I am, I was like, I'm going to research other online business opportunities. Um, yep. and thought, well, and this is so 2012, I was like, I'm going to start a blog. And at that time, we were really starting to see the kind of the rise and the rise of the wellness blogger. This is back in the days when everyone blogged. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, you know, it was like, you know, you've got cancer, have a coffee enema and cure yourself or drink lemon and water every morning. And, um, you know, That's still happening all that kind seven of years stuff. later. I've heard yeah, that. All that, I just read that All blog. that woo-woo <laughs> kind of well-being world, right? And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, who are these unqualified people? And, and, and so, you know, initially I would kind of go on and I'd make a few little comments questioning them and then I thought, that's just hopeless. And I thought, well, if they can talk about health, yeah. With, from their perspective, I thought, why can't I, as a scientist, talk about my love, neuroscience, but use their kind of way of connecting with people? And so I was sort of studying what they did, and I thought, well, you know, they're, they're chatty and they're warm and they're conversational and they're connecting and having conversations with the people they read. And I thought, why don't scientists do that? Can't. Surely, mm. surely there's a, there's a space for scientists to do that. So I started a brain health blog where I, I could kind of talk about brain health and well-being. But using, but talking about evidence, use, using kind of science evidence to back up the, the stuff I was saying, mm-hmm. and that was really useful because, in a way, in Australia, it 
it was a it was a fantastic niche and that I started getting all of the if there was freelance writing or consulting with any brain space I, that they would come straight to me so I got some jobs um, doing more more kind of well-known media so the ABC the Australian Broadcasting Corporation here in Australia I sort of started doing stuff with them but again I was I was at a bit of a bottleneck and then I heard about this um, I used to listen to a lot of online business podcasts by this point 2013 2014 15 podcasts were a thing um and I started hearing about online courses and I thought well there's this I started seeing the the people who were coming through to my website the traffic was a lot of people within the umbrella term I now use is the helping professions so people who are maybe counselors or therapists or psychologists social workers and this these, these world of kind of health lifestyle well-being professional coaches um wanting to learn more and more about neuroscience and i started hearing all these neurosciencey terms being used in the general public um like mm. neuroplasticity and brain wiring and people started talking about the gut brain connection and i was like mm-hmm. how, how are you all talking about neuroscience um <laughs> and, and I, so i kind of saw a bit of a space there i thought well i'm i'm yep. the one who talks about neuroscience how can I, I thought, well, I'd like to create a course. I just want to teach neuroscience. That's quite frankly, all I'm really interested in. I just like the content. I like the stuff. Um, who, who, you know, who could be an audience that I could teach an online course to? And I very, very, very quickly decided I did not want to teach neuroscience to um, Joe Public because a lot mm. of the people that are coming looking at people who are very, in a very desperate point in their life. Maybe they've got a a diagnosis of a brain tumor in a family member or someone's got di- a child's been diagnosed with autism or a family member's got Alzheimer's disease and they're really desperate and they're clasping mm-hmm. for straws and science, neuroscience education isn't going to help them. So I thought I mm. don't want to help them. I want to help the people who are helping them. And so I decided if I targeted professionals uh, and taught neuroscience to professionals, that it was that there was that kind of um, – um, a gatekeeper <laughs> and, 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 and space there. But I just, I didn't want to be dealing with people who were emotionally fraught. I wanted to be dealing no, with the people sense. that were helping them. And, mm-hmm. and, and I've, and I very quickly realized as well, having done a lot of, um, when I was doing a lot of the freelancing work, a lot of that was putting together professional development programs, continuing professional development for, oh. for doctors and nurses. And, and I thought, oh, there's this whole industry there. They all have to do so many hours training here. I thought, well, uh-huh. if I create a program that gives them their professional development training hours, then not only will they want to do the program, they have to do the program mm-hmm. um, and they have to do so many hours a year, there's going to be an endless market of, of people mm-hmm. within there. So when I started putting together the program, that was that was very much my idea. It was professional development training. Um, and then I knew also if a lot of these people have their own businesses, I can charge more. You know, I'm not going. I'm yep. not selling a program yep. for thirty dollars to people who are upset about their diagnosis. Mm. I'm selling a thousand dollar program to professionals who need to do the training to help those people who are upset. And that was very much my 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 focus from the beginning. Um, and so, you know, it was hard cobbling it together initially, I have to say. Um, I kind of had a plug-in and a WordPress site and I had it – yeah. it was all very, very – It's a lot. You know, yeah. I feel like I had about 30 pieces of software all kind of taped together and everything was kind of just <laughs> sort of working. Um, but when I launched, um, I launched it, oh, it must have been – 
September-ish 2015. And the first, mm. and I and so I launched and I ran it over eight, I don't know whether I did six or eight weeks. Um, and I had 70 people sign up. And nice. I nearly, and I remember the very first um, purchase of a spot came about 20 minutes after I sent the email out saying, hey, it's open. Um, and I nearly, I couldn't stand up because I was, I freaked out. So on my, you know, I just, I went, oh my God, someone actually bought it and my legs went all shaky and I tried to stand uh-huh. up and I couldn't stand up. I was like, oh my God, it's going to work. And I had so many people that very first launch, which was incredible. That's awesome. Yeah. I was like, oh, well, this is, this is going to work. <laughs> yep. Mm. And then, um, yeah, then it's really, I've kind of, you know, then it's really gone from there. A few years ago, I moved to Kajabi, New Kajabi. Well, Kajabi, mm-hmm. as it's now called. A lot easier. Oh, mm-hmm. my God. Mm-hmm. Instead of, you know, one little thing would go wrong. They had to call a web developer, and the web developer would say, it's the fault of PayPal. And PayPal would go, no, it's the fault of the plugin. Mm-hmm. The other plugin would say, it's the fault of the other plugin. And eventually, everyone would just blame <laughs> Gmail or something. Um, and so I moved everything over to Kajabi about a year and a half ago, which it was seamless. And, um, and, and then really, and perhaps it's pretty quite useful to talk about, I've, I've changed the structure of the course based on the feedback from the students. Yes, and it's been really, that. really, really, really <laughs> important. And each time I deliver the program, I, it's, it's a little bit different to the previous time based on what the students are saying about their needs and their learning and how mm-hmm. I can make it work for them. Because they aren't just doing this because they want to do it. They're doing it because they need to do it for their professional development. So I better make sure that they're learning this stuff and it's useful Mm. and it's impactful. So a a large part now of what I do in terms of delivering the program is not so much thinking about the content. Sometimes I think it might be a bit content heavy, but it is neuroscience. It's not lemon, lemon, lemon and water juice course. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, 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 that doesn't know, count for passion development. Still a bit of content in there, but I think really <laughs> deeply about how I deliver that. Mm-hmm. Is this is it an asynchronous course or is everyone uh, starting? Every, at everyone times? starts at the same time, so I run it twice a year because one of the um, so I get a lot of coaches come through, and a lot of them um, uh, go through the to try and get some credibility, which they should through the International Coach mm-hmm. Federation. Um, so the mm. course is accredited with them and as part of an nice. accreditation with them for ongoing professional development, you need to have um, a certain component of online but a certain component of live interaction with the, with the instructor. Um, and the only way to really kind of make that doable for me on my time is to run it live. Well, I say live, it's, it's online, but over, you know, kind of uh, – 8, 10, 12, and, and it started off at yeah. 8 weeks and now it's up to 12 weeks. The extra weeks are actually just weeks off because people were like, oh, my God, I can't keep up. I need a bit of a break. Um, Perfect. So I, so each at the beginning of each week I drop a lesson. Initially it was like a one-hour video lecture. Now it's, you know, each, each one hour of content is broken down into about five or six little bite-sized videos so they can kind of watch them in one go. They get a, a, a I don't, I hate worksheets, I, can't, I hate filling out forms, but I've been told mm-hmm. by various adult learning professionals that um, one of the best ways to uh, embed your learning is to, is to handwrite notes based on what you've learned. So they get reasonably um, 
you kind of get like a, I call it the notebook, a, P- a PDF download, which is sort of facilitated note taking. And I encourage them to use old fashioned pen and paper because that's a better way to learn than nice. tapping notes. Um, and then, then <laughs> at the end of each week, we have a, a one hour live Q&A via Zoom because that f- then fulfills the requirement of having the live instructor time that a lot of them need for the professional development training, mm-hmm. um, which initially was quite um confronting for me because I don't know every single the answer to every single question people ask although now I've had about six or seven launches maybe maybe six I kind of know what questions they're going to ask and in a way now when I if I redo a lesson I know what questions people always ask so I can kind of think there was a real gap in my teaching there because they kept asking that question um, and so then I mm-hmm. can make sure that I then tweak the content or my delivery to 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 to, uh, to pre-answer that question. So yep. for me, it's just been a, a constant process of getting feedback, and I get feedback at the end of the course, and then tweaking and changing the delivery to make sure that these people learn in the most useful useful way because they're you know they're busy professionals trying to learn neuroscience mm-hmm. um and so i have to make it work it's my job to make it work for them how do you promote it do you like where are you going to institutions that um employ these folks um, or is it actually on a consumer based basis so i've got um i've got an email list that i've kind of slowly built up over over the years mm-hmm. um through my, my my blog and through social media, you know, occasionally mm-hmm. I run Facebook ads um, and that kind of, you know, over the years has slowly built up, built up, built up and people yeah. can like pre-register. The next round is in September 2019. People can pre-register and um, so I sell and then I, I do all the marketing through social media and the, um, my yeah. email list. But I do also do a lot of public speaking. Um, uh, yeah, and, so people sign up or get on your list. Yeah, and there. typically yeah. – I will speak in schools or I'll speak to a psychologist association uh-huh. or I'll speak recently I did a, a talk at a, the Australian Hypnotherapy Association. Um, oh, so cool. I'm asked, so a lot of the time, and, and if I speak for free, which I don't like doing, but if I do speak for free, if it's if those are the people who are going to come and do my course, then I might speak for free mm. and then I can flog the course. I've got, you know, I've had beautiful on made on Canva. I made some really lovely flyers and I can kind of hand them out. And, um, mm-hmm. and generally if you speak for free, then I can kind of say, look, I'm going to, do you mind if I talk about my course at the end, not as a hard sell, but then I will, I will often very much frame my talk around, um, and give myself room to say, and in my, in my in my online course, we would talk about this, and students might ask me that, and then I can kind of integrate that very gentle touch, I suppose, selling mm-hmm. within within the talks that I that I give. Um, but then that really re- just restricts me to an Australian audience. Um, yeah. I would say over just over fifty percent of the people who have done my program are, are from the US, um, North America, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, each kind of, you know, launch, launch I do, I'm kind of waiting and wondering and hoping it's going to, it's going to, it's going to go again, but, but so far it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And this, 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 uh, particular, uh, the last few months for the first time I've offered a self-study, what the industry might call an evergreen online course, mm-hmm. because I do get people coming through and saying, oh, look, I don't have time now. Um, and they might just want it. They're just really interested in the content, not so much in the, the, the Facebook group and the professional development hours. And so I've kind of now got two levels. I've got you can just 
access okay. the online content only, study anywhere from, you know, in, in your own space, but you don't get the professional development hours. Mm-hmm. And then I've got um, the, the the kind of the bigger, I call it the scholar program, which gives people, you know, they get to ask me questions. They get a, you know, a, a one-on-one call with me. I don't know how that's going to go. Oh, nice. um, I'm doing that for the first time this time. I, I don't oh, know whether new. I'm going to ah. regret that because I'm going to spend, you know, the next three months on the phone. I'm not very, um, <laughs> give me, uh, give me a mic like now, give me a TV camera, uh, give me a stage in front of 2000 people. I'm very happy. One-on-one coaching. Oh, it's not really my forte. <laughs> I like talking well, at, find pe- out if I like like talking at people about neuroscience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not really, I don't really oh, like counselling people through their process. <laughs> mm, but, you know, it's mm-hmm. all part of giving them more value for, you know. Yeah, and, and, and seeing if you like it. And if you don't like it, you don't offer it. Yeah, yet. yeah. And yeah. I think it's, it's yeah. to give, you know, it kind of justifies, you know, bumping up the fees and, um, mm-hmm. You know, you've got to build your business, right? I don't want it to stagnate. Sure. So, no. it's, you know, and, and the beauty is, you know, you can try things out. If they work, great. If they don't work, well, you know, you go back to the drawing board. Fail hard and fail fast. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Keep going. Mm. I love it. What was the uh, accreditation um, procedure like to get the, the program um, recognized? So, a lo- here in Australia, um, a lot of the, like, say, psychologists and teachers can and nurses can put together their own um, kind of professional learning goals for a year. And mm. some courses that they may do may be accredited by their particular, the Australian Psychological Association, for example, does accredit some programs. But if a psychologist says, on my learning calendar this year, I want to learn about neuroscience, um, and then they can choose to do my course which is not accredited by them, but recognised because obviously I've created something that is is, is professional. So it doesn't have to be – a lot of people get the, the hours. I, I give them the, a certificate with the hours, um, mm-hmm. but it's not accredited. The International Coach Federation has gone down the path of accrediting, which I think is good because it's a very unregulated industry, and so it needs some, yes. it needs some gatekeepers in there or else it's just going to go, wow. <laughs> so – <laughs> that process, um, look, it was, it's really like writing a grant application. You know, you just go and answer all the questions, talk about, you know, you have to put in your CV, your learning outcomes, um, you know, a description of each of the various um, lessons and their content. And they've got various criteria um, that have to be fulfilled for their various um, uh learning outcomes within the association so you kind of go through and, and, ma- and match all of them up. It's really just administrative mm-hmm. paperwork um, and yeah, box right. ticking to go through, give them access to the program and um, I guess they double check, you've said what you've said, you are who you say you are um, and then you can then say and then they will say you can award this many hours using our name. Um, and then essentially that is based on the number of hours of um, asynchronous learning, so video, mm-hmm. you know, and then um, the live interaction they have with me. They all have to do, my students might have to do another hour or so a week maybe. Um, at the mm-hmm. moment they get 28 hours or 27 hours over 12 weeks. Um, but they probably have to do more work than that, but there's no way to validate that. Yeah. Right. So that's kind of, you know, that's, that's I guess, what happens with professional development. Um, yep. <laughs> and then I do I do a multi-choice quiz 
which was not the best way to embed learning, although testing is a really good way, self-testing is a really good way to embed learning, but a multi-choice quiz at the end, and as I say to the students, this is not about you you learn, this is a box tick that you've got to do so I can give you a certificate. Right. Um, yeah, and then the it means I don't have to read essays. Um, yep. <laughs> I have, although I have just put together a second, a, a second kind of little course because my students all, all kept saying to me, one of the pieces of feedback I got was, what's next, what's next, and how can we have more class interaction? Because I think they all got sick mm. of listening to me. So I put together a, a kind of a smaller, kind of a, a quicker course I, I put together based on, on my book. Um, which looks at women's brain health, kind of the female brain through the lifespan, a womb to tomb look, and each chapter looks at a different point in life, like in utero and childhood, puberty, uh, menstrual cycle, pregnancy, menopause, um, looking at the neurobiology of those phases. And and I thought, I'll do it more of a book club, so I kind of sit and have a bit of a a 10-minute chat to camera about the chapter, talking about interesting scientists I spoke to and the research for that. They, no, that's cool. They go away, mm-hmm. fill out the – so as I say to them, you haven't got hours of video to watch. Ten minutes of me kind yeah. of chit, yep. chit, chat. They fill out the – they do their notebook, which is, again, facilitated note-taking, and then we get together and have a Zoom chat. But instead of me doing a Q&A, they all talk to each other about their experiences. Oh, nice. um, I didn't have a massive uptake on that. I was surprised because everyone kept saying, oh, well, we want to do it, we want to do it, we want to do it. And I was like, well, here you all go. And I was like, right, okay. You say you want it, but, you know, it wasn't a failure. I've had, so I've had, nine yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had about 950 people. I'm nearly going to have 1,000 people do the Neuroscience Academy. I had about 950 people um, and and – and I think 18 of them took up the offer to do oh, the wow. second one. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, maybe you don't – you say you want it, but maybe you don't. I don't know. It's August. Yeah, isn't that Maybe, funny? you know, yeah. the Northern Hemisphere people, it's the wrong time of the year, but it's when it's suited uh, me. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Um, but that – so it's a much more – it's a much looser, different sort of style rather than a mm-hmm. more of an, a lecture style. It's much more conversational and everyone's kind of coming together and sharing their thoughts. The assessment at the end of that, they're going to give a little three or four minute um, presentation to the rest of the group about a particular topic that they have chosen from the book. And in and, and a way of, here's a topic, here's how I would talk about it to a, non, a non-professional or a non-expert in this. I'll explain what happens to your brain during pregnancy. This is how I would talk about it to a client who's pregnant. And that'll be my assessment that That's time. Cool. So I, I just wanted to try something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um and I, and I had a lot of fun with that. I think it's less tight um, and less hours, <laughs> but, but, yeah, 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 but maybe yeah. put that out to the general public. Maybe that will have a bit of a bit of a different uptake. I don't know. I have to kind of wait and see. Yeah, exactly. what I'm, I think there's a lot of yeah, yeah, there's a lot of talk about that. So that kind of space. I, I like it, and I think I think that's our job, kind of as you know. We, we have businesses, we're testing things. I mean, marketing is all about testing and there might, yeah, you never know. J- even just selling to people that have already bought from you, that audience is very different than the potential mainstream audience that could buy if you did a, a, you know, a round of morning shows or whatever, right? Where people are like, oh, that book sounds interesting. Oh, she's hosting a book club. Like how cool is that? And so it's just like, it's just playing with that kind of stuff. But thank you for sharing just in being you know, transparent about that thought process, because I do think that that helps a lot of people who are teaching in their business and selling products and playing with 
levels of access, right? And the ways that we deliver things and the things that our students are asking for. I think that's really yeah, and great I think what it's, you painted as for a us. researcher for me, learning about how people learn has been that's not mm-hmm. something I'm really new. And I have really because I just like love learning new stuff. That mm-hmm. has been fun to apply. Like I can learn right? it and I can yeah, actually I do something with that with that information in my just little, little things like just use pen and paper to write notes because you actually have to yeah because you better. have to like mm-hmm. get write down the gist of an idea rather than if you're sitting at your computer typing you just might as well be a court yep. you know sitting in court like you know doing the, the transcribing it's not going in through your brain whereas a pen you have to yeah so just little things like that yeah um that's cool. which I love teaching and then you know it's like you can actually be useful and use that info for for, for, for students yep Oh, that's Mm. fun. Cool. Well, it's been so fun talking with you, Sarah. Um, I'd love for you to share with us quickly where people can find you and learn more about you, where you're maybe hanging out on social, um, if you want to share some of that. Yeah, sure. So um, I have kind of, I'm trying to up my Instagram game at the moment. Oh, cool. Because I think it's a really fun fun way to, it's it's a really fun way to educate people. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, you can use little emoticons and, and, um, so I'm, I'm probably, and I share that through to my other social. So, um, what's my Insta name? I'm a bit hopeless. Sarah Marie Mackay, M-A-R-E-E Mackay, um, is my Insta name. And I do lots of kind of little like neurosciencey type educationally entertainmenty silly things on there um my i've got two websites the course the info about the course is the neuroacademy.com um the course is called the neuroscience academy but the url i could only buy a few years ago was that neuroacademy.com and then i have a all, all the rest of my stuff is housed on yourbrainhealth.com.au which was the blog that i sort of started back in 2012 um, oh, nice. And, you know, you can find out about books and TV shows and all the other sort of bits and pieces that I do on there as well. Awesome. What was your book title? Um, it depends where in the world you live. A bit like, just like J.K. Mm. Rowling and Harry, the Harry Potter series. It's got different mm-hmm. titles and covers right. in different countries. In Australia and the US, <laughs> which is probably where most of your market is, it's called The Women's Brain Book, The Neuroscience mm. of Health, Hormones and Happiness. Hmm. Nice. Well, we will link to all of that goodness below in the show notes. Thanks so much for hanging out. That was good. I know it's early where you are, um, yeah. but that was uh, it was great to hear about what you're up to in the world. Oh, Very interesting. Indulging. Um, yeah. I really enjoyed the story. <laughs> Opportunity. No. This is lovely to just chat about yourself. You know, <laughs> not quite a lot about yeah, that topic. Yeah, right. That's it's perfect. Really fun. <laughs> That's part of the game. <laughs> Very cool. Well, thanks for everything you shared because that was really great. Okay. Cheers. Thanks, guys. <laughs>